And we were talking about how uh, about this sermon series in the book of Revelation. And it was telling me how he had actually been finding it a little bit hard. Not because he wasn't getting the message. He gets that revelation, he's calling on Christians to persevere in their faith uh, because their future is in heaven. He gets that. But he was finding it hard to look forward to heaven because he couldn't picture heaven like he could picture his own home. You know when you're away from home and you start getting homesick? You look forward to going home because you know what it's like. You know the comfort of your bed. You know where, uh, who's around and who's not. You know where things are kept. Or at least my wife knows where things are kept. And so you look forward to going home. But you can't picture heaven like you can picture your own home. Now I wonder if this is your struggle as well. It's certainly my struggle. Maybe you don't know what to picture. Or maybe you've come across so many different pictures that you don't know which one's the right one. Now there's that classic picture of heaven, isn't there? A place of fluffy white clouds, uh, winged angels, harp music and, and bright white light everywhere. That mystical place up in the sky where we'll be floating around as spirits. But for others, the picture of heaven is more, it's not so much up there, it's more down here. Um, a bit of your own personal paradise, you could say. Uh, has anyone seen the show The Good Place? A few of us. The Good Place is a very good show. You should watch it. In The Good Place, the good place is heaven, essentially. The bad place is hell. By the way, I'm giving spoilers here, so you might want to close your ears for the next 10 seconds. When the characters finally make it to the real good place, one of the characters, Tahini, she asked the question, are we sure we're in the actual good place? And another character, Margaret, replies, this is definitely some part of the good place. Just take a deep breath. The good place smells like whatever makes you happiest. And so one character smells warm pretzels. Tahini smells the curtain between first class and economy closing. Everyone smells something different because it's whatever makes them happiest. In other words, heaven is a place that is tailored to you. It fits you. It's whatever you want it to be. There's so many different pictures of heaven. So what's heaven really like? What am I actually supposed to look forward to? That's the question I want to answer today from the book of Revelation. Because Revelation chapter 21 and 22 presents us with God's picture of heaven. Now, if today was the first time you read that passage, you may have been surprised to hear of heaven being described as a city. Have a look at chapter 21, verse 10. The Apostle John tells us about his vision, and he says, And he, that's the angel, carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, the word heaven there, sometimes the Bible uses it to simply mean the sky. And so heaven, as in the way we're using it, God's place, where God is, is coming down out of the sky. It's described as the holy city, Jerusalem. But it's not talking about the Palestinian Jerusalem, but the new Jerusalem, as we saw last week. Have a look back at verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down, coming down out of heaven, out of the sky. 
Now, it's worth noting again that the book of Revelation is written in a genre known as apocalyptic literature. I can't stress this enough. This means that it uses symbolic imagery drawn from the Old Testament to convey its message. And so uh, this picture of heaven isn't meant to be read literally. We're not supposed to picture heaven as a literal cube shape, for example. Having said that, even though it's not a literal picture, it's still a real picture. It's real in the sense that it's describing reality. And so my aim today is to help you capture a sense of the beauty of heaven, a sense of the reality, so that you might be able to look forward to heaven as your true home, to make you a little bit homesick, you could say. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to show you what you're going to miss out on, but what you can be a part of if you put your trust in Jesus. So let's get into the passage, shall we? What's the heavenly city like? We're at point one. It's a city of twelves. Did you notice how many times the number 12 came up as the Bible was read? Come with me to chapter 21. Do you want to guess which verse? Verse 12. You had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. What do the 12 gates represent? They represent Israel, the Old Testament people of God. Now look at verse 14. He continues, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 apostles were Jesus' closest followers. They followed him everywhere that he went. They ate with Jesus. They drank with Jesus. Maybe they even played handball with Jesus. They saw Jesus die on the cross. But they also saw him come back to life. That is, the apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. And so they were the very first ones that Jesus sent out to proclaim the good news of salvation. And as people heard the good news and they believed it, they became Christians and the church was formed. And so the 12 foundations of the heavenly city represent the Christian church, the New Testament people of God. In verse 19, the 12 foundations are adorned with 12 jewels. Now this list actually corresponds to a list of 12 stones which we read about in Exodus 28. You may have come across this in growth groups this week. Exodus 28 is a chapter all about what the high priest had to wear, and it was very detailed. The high priest had to wear a special linen garment called an ephod. He had to wear a special turban. had to wear uh, even special underwear. He also had to wear a special breastplate on the front of the ephod, and he had four rows of three stones, so 12 stones in total, And written on each stone was one of the names of the tribes of Israel. And so, like the 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate, the 12 jewels in Revelation 21 represent Israel. Now, as I read this passage during the week, a question came to mind. Why are the jewels 
which represent Israel, adorning the foundations of the city, which represent the New Testament church. I mean, it would make more sense for the jewels to be adorning the gates, don't you think? Because they both represent Israel. So why are they adorning the foundations? And I think it's to show the continuity of the New Testament church with Old Testament Israel. The New Testament church is New Israel. So that while history divides God's people into two groups, Old Testament and New Testament, we're actually all united as the one people of God because we're all saved in the same way. There's no two different ways of being saved in the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the faithful remnant of Israel were saved by faith in God's promise of a saviour. Now that Jesus has come, we live in the New Testament period and we're saved by faith in Jesus, the promised saviour. They look forward to the coming of a saviour. We look backward to the saviour who has come. And so while the direction is different, the object of our faith is the same. It's Jesus Christ. And so the 12 foundations of the city are adorned with the 12 jewels to show the continuity of the New Testament church with God's people of the Old Testament. So what what does all of this mean for us now then? Well, I want to note two things in particular. Firstly, the heavenly city, this one should be obvious, the heavenly city will include all of God's redeemed people, both Old and New Testament, both the faithful remnant of Israel and Christians. None will be missing. All will be there. And that should bring us great assurance if we belong to Christ. But secondly, the heavenly city will include only God's redeemed people. Have a look at verse 27. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Or if you look down a few verses to chapter 22, verse 4. Only those bearing his name on their foreheads. Think of the book of life as the record of your citizenship and the name on your forehead like your passport. Only citizens of heaven will have passports to enter the city. But those who are not will not enter the city. Look again at chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. In other words, not everyone goes to heaven. Some people believe that Jesus is one of many ways that everyone will be saved. Other people believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, but that every person will experience that personally, whether in this life or the next. Either way, both groups believe that in the end, everyone will be saved and go to heaven. This belief is called universalism, but it's not what the Bible teaches. Revelation clearly says that unbelievers will not go to heaven because God is holy and nothing unholy will enter his heavenly city. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter because they have been cleansed of their unholiness by his blood. So the heavenly city is a city of twelves, 
But you would have also noticed that it's a perfect cube. And we're at point two. Have a look at chapter 21, verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. How long is 12,000 stadia? Well, you can actually work this one out for yourself. If you look at your Bible again, you might see a footnote uh, in verse 16 next to the word stadia. If you have a church Bible, it's the little number four. And if you look at the footnote, it will tell you that a stadion is about 185 meters. In total, if you work that out, do the calculation, that's 2,200 kilometers. That's a long way. That's about the distance from Sydney to Cairns. The heavenly city is 12,000 stadia in length, width, and height. It's the shape of a cube, an enormous cube, by the way. It's a big city. But more significantly, it would have also reminded the Jewish readers of the shape of the inner sanctuary of the temple, the room called the Most Holy Place. That's worth turning this one up. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. And let's have a look at the inner sanctuary of the temple. 1 Kings chapter 6. And you'll find that on page 284 in your church Bibles. Now when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he instructed them to build a tabernacle, which was like a portable tent. And it was to go wherever they went. Um, Eventually God brought Israel into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And in 1 Kings chapter 6, Solomon gets to work on building the temple, which is to be the permanent replacement of the tabernacle. And what was the temple for? We'll look at 1 Kings 6 verse 13. And God says, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And so the temple, like the tabernacle, was where God dwelt among his people. Not because God is confined to a physical building, but because it was the symbol of God's presence. And inside this temple, the most holy place was the innermost room. It was where a special chest called the Ark of the Covenant was kept. You can see that in verse 19. And so the innermost room was where God said he would appear. It was where God's presence was. However, this innermost room was separated by a curtain from the other room. And only the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place once a year uh, and to sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed animal on the top cover of the ark to make atonement for the people's sins before God. And so it was not just a symbol of God's presence. The most holy place was also a symbol of God's inaccessibility. You know, sinful people can't just approach a holy God without their sins being dealt with. And if you look to verse 20 of chapter 6, it says this, The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. It's in the shape of a cube. Now turn back to Revelation 21. The whole city is in the shape of a cube. The whole city represents God's dwelling place. Which is why in verse 22 of chapter 21, 
There's no temple in the city. There's no temple. But how can there be no temple in Jerusalem? After all, the temple was the central landmark of the city of Jerusalem. The temple was to Jerusalem what the Eiffel Tower is to Paris, or the Statue of Liberty was, is to New York, or the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge are to Sydney, or closer to home what the square and the plaza are to Strathfield. Now imagine we were to build the new Strathfield with no square and no plaza. Would it even be Strathfield? So how can there be no physical temple in the new Jerusalem? That's a big deal. And it's because of what Jesus did on the cross. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said about the physical temple, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was, a talking, about, he was talking about his body. He was talking about his death and resurrection. Because his death is what makes us fit to enter God's presence. He offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins to make atonement for our sins. So that Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 tells us, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So that's why the new Jerusalem doesn't need a temple, because the whole city is a temple. Jesus' death has made all of God's people fit to enter his presence. You would have also noticed that God's presence is represented as his glory. In verse 23, the city doesn't need the sun or moon because the glory of God gives it light. And in verse 11, the radiance of God's glory is likened to a precious gemstone. Three years ago, I proposed to my wife, or was it four years ago? Something like that. And in the weeks leading up to the proposal, I became somewhat of a diamond expert, self-proclaimed. I did all this research into buying the ring, and I came across this guy called Marcel Tokolsky. can't even pronounce his name. Let me tell you about Marcel. He was a mathematician and a gemologist, and in 1919, he created what is still considered the best formula to cut a diamond. He worked out the best formula to cut a diamond so that it would reflect the most light. He worked out that it needed to be cut into 58 perfectly proportioned facets. And this formula became known as the ideal cut diamond. My wife has an ideal cut diamond, just for your information. Like the brilliance and sparkle of an ideal cut diamond, the heavenly city radiates the glory of God's presence. And it's almost as if the whole city is designed to allow God's glory to shine through it. Did you notice that? In verse 18, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. In verse 21, the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. God's glory shines through the whole city. It's magnificent. In other words, heaven isn't about you. 
Heaven isn't your own personal paradise. It's not tailor-made to suit you. It's not whatever makes you happiest place. For me, that would be living on a waterfront house by the beach, riding my bicycle with no fear of death because there are no cars around, and eating tubs of cookies and cream ice cream. But not home brand cookies and ice cream, uh, cookies and cream ice cream. Cookies and cream ice cream that has more cookies than cream. That type of cookies and ice cream, that would be my heaven. But heaven isn't my coastal retreat eating ice cream, nor is it your country escape. It's God's city. It's God living among his people, and it's us living with him in the fullness of his presence. Finally, the heavenly city is a garden palace. And we're at point three now. Have a look at chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. No longer will there be anything accursed. Now what does this picture remind you of, I wonder? It reminds you of the Garden of Eden before the fall in Genesis 2, doesn't it? Because like in Eden, this heavenly city has a river and a tree of life. And so it reminds us of the original paradise of creation. But it's not exactly the same as Eden, is it? Did you notice the differences? Unlike Eden, this river flows directly from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It represents the gift of eternal life that comes from being in the very presence of God himself. His presence is like a river that brings forth life wherever it runs. The desert of central Australia is one of the hottest, driest places on earth. Virtually nothing can grow there for any length of time. But once in a decade, this lifeless desert is transformed. You see, in southwest Queensland, the monsoon rains fall. Uh, monsoon rains fall. And if there's enough rain, they start to fill the riverbeds. And then they start to run down south to South Australia, where they flood over the desert to form uh, the lake, the, Australia's largest lake, Lake Eyre. And with water comes all sorts of life. Pelicans from hundreds of kilometers away from the coast of Australia fly to Lake Eyre. Hundreds of, of different types of fish flow down the rivers and plants bloom as well. And this is what God's presence in the heavenly city is like. It's like the life-giving waters of a river. And there's the tree of life, which from Genesis we're told that to eat of its fruit is to live forever. But we're told in Revelation that this tree of life stands on either side of the river. Now, how does the tree of life, singular, stand on both sides of the river? Well, I think it's because the tree of life is being used as a collective name to represent many trees of life. The vision of the heavenly city reminds us of the original paradise of creation, but it's not a return to Eden because it's better. It's a picture of God's people being completely surrounded by life that comes from God. So by recalling the picture of the first creation, Revelation shows us that if you want to know what, the, what heaven is like, the original Eden 
is your best hint. So heaven is not a materialist place. It's not some kind of mystical place up in the sky where we'll be floating around as spirits. This kind of view that we'll that the that we need to try and escape our bodies to go to, to heaven and float as spirits is, is is steeped in Greek philosophical thought. In Platonic thought, humans consist of body and soul. Uh, the soul is immortal, and it and when it's born, it's born into a physical body. But the physical body is bad. It's like a prison, and your soul is trapped inside of it. And only when you die is your soul released from your body. And those who are righteous will then be taken, their soul will be taken to a heavenly place. That's not the biblical idea. It's not biblical. Because heaven isn't an escape from our bodies. No, God's creation was good. It's fallen now because of a sin, but it was good. And heaven is the new creation. It's a physical place where God's people will live physically. Notice also that in the middle of this garden, there's a throne. It's not just a garden, it's a garden palace. But, um, so there's a throne. And look at verse 3. Uh, who's sitting on this throne? It's the throne of God and of the Lamb. And his servants worship him. And they'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What's happening here? God's the king. He's seated on his throne, and God's people are worshipping him. It's a picture. It's a picture of God's rightful rule restored. But not just that. You know what the most marvelous thing about this picture is? God's people will see his face. Don't let that little detail escape you. Because seeing God's face is a big deal. In the Old Testament, even Moses, the great prophet of God, was not allowed to see his face. You know, Moses, the one who God used to send the ten plagues on Egypt and to lead Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and then who delivered the ten commandments to Israel. Even this Moses, God said to him, You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And Jesus himself said, No one has ever seen God. But in the new creation, in that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, all of God's redeemed people will see his face and live. That's a big deal. But how? If Moses couldn't see God's face, and Jesus says no one has ever seen God's face, how can we see God's face? And it's because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is there in that city. Jesus is God become man. And so to look at Jesus is to see God himself. In John chapter 14 verse 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Charles Spurgeon said these words, Faith is precious, but what must sight be? To view Jesus as the Lamb of God through the glass of faith makes the soul rejoice with joy unspeakable. But oh, to see him face to face, to look into those dear eyes, to be embraced by those divine arms, 
Rapture begins at the very mention of it. Brothers and sisters, this is the Bible's picture of heaven. It's a picture of all of God's redeemed people coming face to face with the infinite glory of the Lamb of God and reigning with him forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a taste of heaven. Thank you for the vision in Revelation 21 and 22 about all of us who belong to Christ, dwelling with you and being in your glorious presence. And so would you imprint in our hearts a desire to look forward to it. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.